We'll start out with a little more penance for you. This is a, a song called Forgiveness. Some people will torture you From morning till you go to bed Without warning they'll come at you Try to get inside your head Some people will criticize you From when you're born till you die They'll try to tighten that old screw And leave you wondering why He never said thou shalt like your neighbor but thou shalt love the son of a gun Much like a woman in labor Forgiveness brings new life But it's not much fun Some people will persecute you Try to drive you out of your mind They wear a constant frown too because they're so very unkind Some people will crucify you Hang you up upon the cross Yet they don't have a clue Of the friend that they have lost He never said thou shalt like your neighbor Thou shalt love the son of a gun Much like doing a man a favor Forgiveness brings joy But not till the deed is done So all we can do is love and pray So we won't hate anybody today Return a blessing, not a curse so things will get better, not worse He never said thou shalt He never said thou shalt like your neighbor But thou shalt love the son of a gun Much like food without flavor Forgiveness is a taste of peace When the war is won He never said, thou shalt like your neighbor But thou shalt love the son of a gun Much like ascending Mount Tabor Forgiveness is a glimpse of the glory to come Only two mistakes. <laughs> My eyes are getting worse and worse, so sometimes a G looks like a C. Um, I started writing these little songs uh, when I was here at the retreat house, and um, I just kept doing it. And, and up until now, I've written over 100 songs since 2004. 
And uh, my cousin Nancy up in Idaho keeps telling me, stop! Because <laughs> I was trained as a painter and, and um, you know, doing oil paintings and watercolors. She said, stop doing those little songs and paint. So someday I'll probably do that. <laughs> um, the theme of today's, this morning's talk is marriage and forgiveness in Christ. Last night we talked about uh, coming home to family, reflected upon the nature of the family. Um, and this morning I'd like to talk about, you know, the foundation of the family, which is marriage in Christ. Um, there's a joke. Uh, I met a man who had been married for 66 years. Amazing, 66 years, I said. What's the secret to such a long and happy marriage? Well, he replied, it's like this. The man makes all the big decisions and the woman just makes the little decisions. Really? I responded, does that really work? Oh yes, he said proudly. 66 years and so far, not one big decision. Another one. A woman was telling her friend, it is I who made my husband a millionaire. And what was he before you married him, asked her friend. The woman replied, a billionaire. <laughs> I know, that's just to get you smiley. If you're married, the first step in towards marriage was when God providentially arranged the meeting of your grandparents, the meeting of your parents, and then both of you as spouses. The second step, at least uh, in terms of popular culture, is uh, the falling in love part. Uh, that powerful force of eros capable of pushing a man and a woman up the aisle where they freely and joyfully pledge their love and fidelity for a lifetime. Nowadays, uh, many times the issue is to convince one or the other or both that there's some supreme value in the sacrament of holy matrimony, of getting married in the church, as opposed to merely shacking up, as they say. Winston Churchill, the towering giant of the, of the 20th century, he once quipped, my most brilliant achievement this is my Winston Churchill imitation. My most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me. I always thought that was very interesting because here's the man who stood up against Hitler, you know, and so many other things uh, in his, his long and varied life um, that he considered uh, his marriage his greatest achievement. And marriage is indeed an achievement of both spouses, an achievement of responding to God's will, to God's call, responding to spouse, both spouses to their vocation in life. For those of you who are married, you know, congratulations to you. Um, for saying yes to God and to one another um, 
when Our Lady said yes to the angel. You know, she said yes uh, to, yes, receiving Jesus into her womb in the incarnation, but she was also accepting on faith and trust everything that would follow from that, both joys and sorrows and glories. That's why we have the, the different mysteries of the rosary, you know. Um, congratulations, because uh, of your courageous Christian witness before the world, for getting married in church in the presence of God and family and friends, but also, again, before the skeptical eyes of a disbelieving world. Fulton Sheen wrote a, a classic book called Three to Get Married. And what he meant by that was husband and wife, yes, but also God. Marriage is not a purely human institution. God is the author of marriage and the primary creator of the life of the family. The spouses are not only the ministers of this sacrament, but also God's cooperators, his procreators, what J.R.R. Tolkien called sub-creators. Marriage and the new family that results from it is the single most indispensable foundation for human happiness in all societies and in most individual lives. Whatever culture you're in, whatever country you're in, no matter what generation you belong to, this is true. And marriage has a history in God's plan, beginning, like we mentioned last night, in the eternal essence of the Trinity, of mutual self-giving love among the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we see the beginning of marriage in Genesis, a, a word that means beginning. Uh, marriage begins with the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God, and therefore in the image of love. It is a primary example of a covenant that is a binding relationship based neither on mere feeling or on external human law, but on a freely chosen commitment and God's free grace. Um, a covenant is a little bit like a contract, but a contract is an exchange of goods and services. If I asked you to paint my house, I have to pay you in that contract for your services. Um, so a marriage is much more than that. Uh, a covenant is not an exchange of goods and services, but an exchange of persons. Where, whereby um, your husband becomes yours and you become your husband's and God, you both become God's. A binding relationship neither based on feeling or external human law. So the human marriage covenant can no more be dis dissolved than God's covenant. We know the familiar phrase, what God has joined, man must not divide. 
Scripture affirms that man and woman were created for one another. It's not good that the man should be alone, Genesis says. Uh, man is for woman, and woman is for man. That sounds like a song, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't worry. Each exists for the other, not for the self. Equal in value, different in nature, complementary in purpose. Yet like everything in human life, marriage fell from its innocence with our first parent's original sin. That should explain so many things about our problems and struggles and sufferings and trials. But thanks to God, through his incarnation, Christ married the human race, saving us from sin and its disastrous consequences by his death and resurrection, giving us the graces we need to overcome all of those trials and tribulations that are brought to us by our daily crosses, thus revealing the deepest meaning of marriage, raising it to the dignity of a sacrament. St. Paul in Ephesians says that marriage is an image of the union of Christ and his bride, the church, which means all of us. Finally, scripture concludes in God's plan with a vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb, our ultimate destiny of heavenly joy. So if it seems like marriage is so difficult and so important, we have to look at it in terms of the plan of God. You know, it's at the very center of the plan of God. And you who are married and have families are at the very center of the meaning of life. And that's why, of course, the evil one tries to uh, disrupt your marriages and your lives by so many artifices and temptations and difficulties. And why our Lord gives us so many protections through the holy angels and the saints and the church and his very presence and the blessed mother and so on and so forth. You know, when the angels fell from heaven at the beginning, uh, they said one-third of the angels fell and became demons, but that left two-thirds of the angels with us, defending us, helping us, guiding us, illuminating us, inspiring us with uh, good desires, uh, protecting us. And many times we don't realize that. We tend to believe the lie that maybe we're alone, we're on it, we're having to slog through this all by ourselves, but no. The purpose of holy matrimony is twofold. The lifelong fidelity and mutual support of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. And like all sacraments, it gives to the spouses the grace it signifies. Husband and wife receive many actual graces, that is divine help given to you at the moment when it is most needed. This is, again, something we don't realize. 
that marriage is a font of graces and that all you have to do is ask for them and be aware enough to realize that God is offering them to you in some way or form. Even apart from your spouse, through these graces you mature as beloved children of the Father. And Christ will be evermore a part of your life and in your souls. Christ dwells with the spouses. He gives them the strength to take up their crosses and to follow him, to rise again after they have fallen, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another out of reverence for him, and to love one another with a supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. Moreover, the spouses receive a greater fullness of the Holy Spirit of divine love. Uh, John Paul II called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God's personal love, which is, as St. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 13, love which is patient and kind, that endures all things. How much we have to endure, right? It is self-giving, it does not count the cost, nor does it avoid sacrifice. You know, this Holy Spirit of God's love helps you to love at the deepest level of love. You know, C.S. Lewis said there were three natural loves. The first one is affection. We all need that. That's the glue that keeps family life together, no? That's what we experience from when we're kids. And we can have affection toward, you know, uh, inanimate objects. I remember taking my, my brother's blanket away from him, you know, when he was a little kid. And he screamed bloody murder. Why? Because, well, he had such an affection for the way it was and he didn't want my mother to wash it. We have affection toward animals, but affection is built up in the family. And the lack of affection is, is a great suffering. Think of the study that was done in Russia where the little kids who were, you know, in the orphanage and they just left the little kids in their bassinets and they never touched them, they never embraced them, they never held them. And those little ones died for lack of affection. The second natural love, Lewis says, is uh, friendship. As we grow, mature, we find that we share a vision with others. We walk side by side toward a common goal. That gives us strength. Friendship is so important for marriage too, isn't it? To be friends in Christ. Uh, a friend is a treasure, Holy Scripture says. We have many acquaintances, but we have very few friends, I believe. The third love is eros, which we mentioned. That powerful, romantic love, the, the, you know, the love that films and popular songs uh, think is the only love. You know, that if you don't have that love, well, you don't have any love, you know. You might as well get out of the marriage because you don't feel that love. No, that's not the deepest love. That's just a human love. These three human loves. Everybody can experience them, even without grace. But the grace of God in your marriage is agape. 
the love with which Jesus loves us. The self-sacrificing love. The love that doesn't count the cost. The love that, that carried us, each one of us, all the way to the cross. That's the love that you love with. The highest level or the deepest level. Don't ever doubt that. That kind of love doesn't always feel good. It's not always warm and fuzzy. When Jesus was being tortured on the cross, he loved us to the extreme. I think that um, the, the most important thing, I th perhaps the most important thing about our Christian life is the ability that God gives us to forgive one another. Um, that love in 1 Corinthians is, forgives all things. It endures all things, but it also forgives all things. I once heard someone say that a successful marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Two people who know how to forgive each other. Uh, the poet Ogden Nash, he wrote this. To keep your marriage brimming with love in the wedding cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. And whenever you're right, shut up. I think he could have said, whenever you're right, just forgive one another anyway. Uh, having said this, I'd like to reflect a little bit more deeply on the necessity to forgive. Not only your spouse or everyone in your life and your family, but to forgive everybody all the way back to your childhood. You know, it's amazing how things that happen in our childhood can affect our present waking life. Hurts and, and wounds from our early years are often played out in bitterness or unforgiveness in our present reality so that we react to things and we don't respond to things in our marriage and in our family. And we don't really know why we're acting that way. For example, if your earthly father was cold and distant and angry and abusive or not present, this distorts the image of God, your Heavenly Father, to the point where you may project negative thoughts or experiences on him or upon your husband or upon others because of the way you grew up. Because of sin, our parents, even the best of parents, and many others have sometimes fail to represent the, the love of God the Father to us. You know, no one functions perfectly as a human being. Original sin causes us to identify more as a slave sometimes than as a free child of God the Father. And we all have areas of our lives that have yet to experience God's full freedom. These sins or habits or even bondages are the devil's attempt to ruin our lives, our marriages, and our family life. So the most powerful weapon that we have against all this is forgiveness. 
Forgiveness sets us free. If the Son of Man frees you, you are set free, truly free. Jesus gave his life to forgive sins. To be like him, we must learn how to forgive. We are commanded to forgive. The Our Father assumes we forgive others their trespasses, even as we are forgiven ours. In fact, unless we forgive, Jesus says we ourselves will not be forgiven. Unforgiveness blocks God's love. But not to worry. Our ability to forgive flows from the cross. If you're having trouble forgiving, unite your will to Christ's will, to his eternal words in the midst of his passion where he prayed for us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I find this very helpful in my own life. When I think of certain things that were done to me or are being done to me or said about me uh, and I feel you know, that interior urge to uh, not to forgive, hatred or even vengeance, I repeat these words and instead of saying forgive them, I say, I, I name the person, Father forgive him or her because he or she, they don't really know what they're doing. Because if they did know what they were doing, they wouldn't do it. You may say, well, they do know what they're doing. <laughs> but do they really? Do they really? And the thing is, some things are so hurtful in our life that we ourselves cannot, we can't wrap our mind around it. We can't, we can't wrap our emotions around it. And, and we're not able to, to say, I forgive. Like you notice in this, this moment, Jesus doesn't say, well, I forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He hands everything over to the Father. And that's what you have to do too. Especially those really deep wounds. Hand everything over to the Father. Father, I hand this over to you. It's too big for me. I can't handle it. It's controlling my, my thoughts, my worries, my anxieties. I hand it over to you. Father, in the name of Jesus, united with the wounds of Jesus, in the passion of Jesus, I hand it over to you. And that's when you start to feel freer. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of will flowing from the freedom of your heart where we freely decide to give up our right to feeling offended. You have to do that. I give up the right to feeling offended. We acknowledge that the other person did not fully know what they were doing. The feeling of forgiveness may never come to you. But if you unite your will to Christ's will, thereby doing God's will, God will help you overcome the many and various obstacles to true forgiveness from the heart. What are, what are some of these? Well, the refusal to forgive, the fear of letting go, holding on to anger, the desire for revenge, the false belief that we can't forgive, it's just beyond us, the lie that some offenses are unforgivable, the refusal to believe that all things are possible with God. There was a retreat here for priests a couple months back. It was led by Neil Lozano and his son Matt, uh, based on their book called Unbound. I really highly recommend that book. 
because uh, it can really help you go through this process of forgiveness and healing. And he says something really interesting. He says that while reconciliation involves two people, or well, no, he says uh, forgiveness involves one person, only you plus the power of God. While reconciliation involves two people plus the power of God. So you may not always be able to reconcile with someone else. Have you ever gone up to someone and say, well, I'm sorry? Expecting them to say, well, I'm sorry too. And they just look at you like, hmm. <laughs> well, you should be. And you're thinking, ah. You know? You're, you want reconciliation. And, but that doesn't always come. You have to settle for forgiveness. You can always forgive. That's always possible for us. Reconciliation is not always possible. So last night, we reconsecrated ourselves to Jesus. We also repented of many things that kind of have impeded our relationship with him. Uh, this morning, I'd like you to think about the people in your, your well, your family, um, in your life, that uh, you need to forgive. Maybe you thought you forgave them. But sometimes the, you know, one of the things that tells you that you really haven't fully forgiven is, or that you haven't been healed of that wound, is that it keeps coming back to you. Um, the memory itself is a sign that either the wound needs to be healed or that you need to continue praying for that person. So, um, Kind of similar to what we did last night. I just have about 10 little, little things just to start you on the way. But between now and Mass, if you could reflect on at least one person or more than one person who needs forgive, your forgiveness, either write their name on a piece of paper or just, you know, during Mass, uh, when I raise the body and blood of our Lord on, over the altar, I want you to to offer that forgiveness to Jesus. Um, if you do write it on a piece of paper, uh, maybe, you know, burn it later after the retreat, not in your room. <laughs> but I think it's a, it's a, a really helpful, it's not just an exercise, but it's, it's a real act of trust in God. And what you say is, you write on the paper, in the name of Jesus, I forgive so-and-so. And you don't have to start re writing the reasons why, because, well, maybe we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> um, and it, it's a hard thing to do, I know, but ask God's grace to help you. So, okay, Shall, let, let's try, it, try this exercise again. These statements may not all pertain to you, but again, we're here together, so we're supporting one another in prayer. Some may pertain to you, others may not. Uh, but let's pray them uh, in a spirit of solidarity. So repeat after me. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus I forgive my family of origin. I forgive my Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I forgive my father. For not being there for me. 
for not embracing me as his beloved daughter, for being cold or distant. Lord Jesus, I forgive my mom for not being there when I needed her. Lord Jesus, I forgive my brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, I forgive my in-laws. My mother-in-law. My husband's brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, I forgive my husband. For not understanding me. For not respecting me. For not paying attention to me. For not listening to me. Lord Jesus, I forgive my son or daughter for arguing with me, for questioning me, for not obeying me. Lord Jesus, I forgive myself for adding to the tension, for reacting angrily and not responding with love. So these are just a few examples. Um, pray about it. Ask the Holy Spirit of God's personal love to lead you in, in this prayer of forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is like, is something, it's like breaking open a dam. If you have unforgiveness, there's a dam there keeping many of God's graces from flowing out upon you. But with forgiveness, the dam is broken in a positive way, not a destructive way, and the graces flow into your life. To conclude, marriage bestows amazing grace on those who do not hinder it. It is God's lavish gift of his abundant life. So you and your spouse might sanctify each other and found a holy family where all members someday will reach heaven together. Yet not to fear, like everything in Catholic life, it's, it's all there in the crucifix, the proof of God's love and the sign of Christ's faithfulness. May the Blessed Virgin Mary, present at the wedding feast of Cana, continue to intercede for you and your spouse and your children. May your marriage be both a gift of your whole self and of all your love, so that the ordinary water of your daily lives might truly become the extraordinary wine of new life together. Amen. <laughs>